This episode is sponsored by Rule by Ellen Goodlett. The king is dying, his heir has just been murdered, and rebellion brews in the east. But the kingdom of Kalanya and the outer reaches has one last option before it descends into leaderless chaos. Or rather, three unexpected options. Zophie, Akela, and Ren. When the king summons the girls to his court, they arrive expecting arrest or even execution. Instead, they learn the truth. They are his illegitimate daughters, and one must become his new heir. But someone in Kalanya knows their secrets, and that someone will stop at nothing to keep the sisters from their destiny. To rule. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. This week we've got two classics. Rin Chupeco talks about her love for The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas, and Grady Hendrix digs into Ulysses by James Joyce. Raised in Manila, Philippines, Rin Chupeco has been a technical writer and travel blogger, and now makes things up for a living. Her YA books include The Girl from the Well and The Bone Witch series, which includes The Bone Witch and The Heart Forger, and follow the adventures of a young witch named Taya who has the power to raise the dead. My name is Rin Chupeco, and The Count of Monte Cristo is my recommended. The Count of Monte Cristo is basically about this guy named Edmund Dantes, who at first glance appears to have everything. He has a very lovely fiancé, and he's about to be the captain of his own ship. But the problem is there are three guys who are sort of envious and kind of coveted all these things that he has. So they all conspired in a lot of different ways to eventually have him imprisoned on an island. And from there, he actually finds a mentor in the form of a a fellow prisoner called the Abbe Faria. And he eventually teaches him that there's a treasure hidden in one of the islands called Monte Cristo, and he's able to eventually escape, get that treasure, and then come back to seek revenge on everybody who has put him there in the first place. And it's basically a sort of swashbuckling adventure full of revenge and betrayal and a lot of drama, which is what I like most of all. I was a very early reader, and I think it was around when I was about 10 years old. During that time, there wasn't really, like, young adult as a genre in most bookstores. So after the usual, like, Nancy, Nancy Drew and Babysitter's Club, I started foraging for, like, more adult books. And that was actually recommended to me by, like, an older, like a, an older uncle who sort of knows how much I like to read. And this was sort of his challenge to me. So I, I picked it up, and I really, really loved it because I am the sort of bloodthirsty reader who likes all these, you know, complicated plot twists and revenge and looking and, you know, uh, all these, like, surprises, surprises and drama, like I mentioned before. And what really got me in the first place was, you know, the the whole unfairness of it all. Like, he was eventually thrown in prison for something that he didn't do. And, you know, growing up in the Philippines where these sort of things are common in, in, in a way, I could actually relate a lot to him. I read about it, and then I look around and think, hey, something like that can happen. It happens a lot in the Philippines. And it it was like my first realization that 
maybe, you know, like people in the West, the countries in the West aren't all that different from here after all, when things like that can happen. I was 10 years old, so there were obviously a lot of things in the book that I didn't really understand at first, like after reading it like the first couple of times. But I, I really loved the book. As I said before, it's the swashbuckling that sort of got to me. But as I grew older, I started thinking a little bit more about like the other themes in the book, like uh, the sense of forgiveness, for example, because there's a lot of revenge in the book. And a lot of characters react to this revenge in different ways. Obviously, Edmund Dantes is out for blood, and he actually successfully takes down two of his enemies. And then in the process, realizes that even as he's seeking revenge, he also winds up harming a lot of other innocents. There was the wife of his enemy who sort of poisoned herself in the end because of all the, you know, the stuff that her husband did. And in the end, she also wound up poisoning her son. And that was like that turning point in the book where Edmund Dantes actually kind of thinks, oh no, what did I do? Like, this isn't what I had in mind when I was planning my revenge. So it's these things that you don't really appreciate when you're like 10 years old, but you appreciate the older you get, like when you're 13, you start thinking about it, and then when you're 16, and you're, you know, and the more the more times you read, the more you sort of understand the themes and the idea that it's more than just a book about revenge. It's also a book about learning to find forgiveness. Toward the end... I think that I really sympathize the most with Haiti, who is technically the, the Count of Monte Cristo's quote-unquote slave, who he buys from Constantinople, I think, and he uses her like as part of his revenge plan because it turns out like one of the guys, the guy who stole his girl, actually sort of betrayed Haiti's father and sold her and her mother into slavery. So that was a really big moment when she stands up and denounces the guy and everything after that sort of leads to his downfall. I mentioned like forgiveness and, you know, like thinking about it, it's really strange because Haiti is the girl there with the character with like the least amount of agency because she's really content to just let Edmund Dantas dictate her life and everything. But when it comes to forgiveness, she's the most unforgiving one of the bunch. And I think that says a lot about her character. Like, there's more to her than just being this really delicate flower that people see. And all throughout, the sort of revelation about her character is that she's been in love with Edmund Dantas all along. So, I, you know, I, I do like my romance. And while the, the, like the expected romance most people come in thinking is like between Edmund Dantas and his former fiancé, Mercedes. But what really appealed to me in the end was the sort of devotion between Haiti and the Count of Monte Cristo. Despite the fact that she has so little time in the book, but she really stands out regardless, and I really like that. It says something about her character, I think, despite the like, she's not in a lot of scenes. With my first book series, which is The Girl from the Well, and... 
the next one that came after that is just the Bullitch trilogy. There's very similar themes there. And I've said it in the past, and whenever I describe those books, I say that it's always about, like, teen girls screaming the resistance to the world, telling them that you're not going to break me, you're not going to move me. And in a way, I think that's very common with the character of Edmond Dantes in The Count of Monte Cristo, mainly because he was very immovable in his own way, where once he's decided that he wants to seek vengeance, that's about the only thing he's really concentrated on. And with my female characters, it's pretty much the same way. The Girl from the Well is really all about a ghost who was murdered in her teens, and now she's just pretty much dedicated to like uh, killing every murderer that she meets. So there's that sort of single-mindedness that's a bit similar. And the same with Thea, who is the, the heroine in my next book, my latest book series, which is, which is The Bone Witch, where she's sort of like the anti-heroine of the series, where... Everybody thinks she's the bad guy for doing one thing, and when it comes down to it, all she really wants is to save her friends and take her revenge against the society that sort of failed her. So that whole theme of finding vengeance and also in a way trying to find forgiveness is really integral to a lot of the things that I write. There was a point I used to read it three times a year or something. It's usually when I I like run out of books, and that happened a lot because I am a very quick reader, and I can go through a book like in a couple of hours maybe. So when I run out of books and I get bored and I don't really have the money to get a new book until maybe a couple more weeks, I usually go back. I defer to my favorites again, and the Count of Monte Cristo is like always like the first one I reach for. It really appealed to me in almost every way. Like the plotting was intense, and it was just that sort of pacing that I really like, where nothing really boring happens in the book. There's always something that's going on. There's really no boring stage in it that I can think of because there's always something happening, and there's always you know somebody about to get their come up and, and, and stuff like that, which is something I've always loved in books. It's a heavy enough book that that's not something you'd normally suggest to 10-year-olds, but I was always a weird girl. I would recommend it for like 10-year-olds who'd like something really they're willing to invest in for a, like for a few more years until they sort of understand every sort of theme that the book's trying to convey. But I would definitely recommend this book because it's like my favorite book of all time. And I there's a copy of it right now in front of me. And <laughs> when you told me about, about this podcast, the first thing I did was just get it and reread it again. Thanks again to Rin Chupeco for joining us and recommending The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. The Heart Forger, published by Sourcebooks Fire, is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Rin Chupeco. This episode is sponsored by Mercy Suarez Changes Gears by Meg Medina. 
Mercy has never been like the other kids at her private school in Florida because she and her older brother, Raleigh, are scholarship students. They don't have a big house or a fancy boat, and they have to do extra community service to make up for their free tuition. So when bossy Edna Santos sets her sights on the new boy who happens to be Mercy's school-assigned sunshine buddy, Mercy becomes the target of Edna's jealousy. Things aren't going well at home, either. Mercy's grandfather and most trusted ally, Lolo, has been acting strangely lately. In a coming-of-age tale full of humor and wisdom, award-winning author Meg Medina gets to the heart of the confusion and constant change that defines middle school and the steadfast connection that defines family. Grady Hendricks is a former journalist and current novelist. He is the author of Horror Store, the only novel about a haunted Scandinavian furniture store you'll ever need, which was selected by NPR as one of the best books of 2014, has been translated into 14 languages, and is being turned into a television show. His next novel, We Sold Our Souls, is a heavy metal take on the Faust legend. My name is Grady Hendricks, and Ulysses by James Joyce is God Help Us, my recommended. Ulysses is quite literally just the story of two dudes and one woman hanging out in Dublin on June 16, 1904. That's it. There's nothing else to it. But I first came across Ulysses for the first time the way everyone should. I did it my very first year in university, and I did it to impress a girl. I went for about a year to this college in Vermont called Bennington before I realized that Bennington was a scary and, and, and odd place and wound up transferring to NYU. But um, that first year, I met this girl, and I, I sort of still had a girlfriend back home in South Carolina, but this girl, she was like a goth, and she was a chain smoker, and like, you know, she listened to Sisters of Mercy, who I'd never heard of, and she just seemed incredibly cool. And she was prone to making statements like, oh, well, everyone should have read Ulysses by this point in their life. And Ulysses is my favorite book. Sometimes I just curl up with it some afternoons and fall in. I mean, it's exactly the kind of stuff that like a freshman college student from South Carolina is gonna be particularly vulnerable to. That, that and like heroin. And so I started reading it because I thought it would impress her. And, and she was impressed. We actually hooked up, but we worked together very long, not even as long as it took me to read Ulysses. And actually, and I have to say, I will always owe her for making me read that book. Because when I came to NYU, I was in this independent study program called Gallatin. And you sort of picked what you wanted to study and they'd assign you a, a professor who was kind of your mentor for that class or you'd take classes from the different schools. And I was like, well, I want to do something fancy. And it and my advisor was talking to me. It turned out that she asked me what books I like to read. And I said, oh, you know, my favorite book is Ulysses. And it turned out that a friend of hers had written, uh, was the co-author of the Gifford and Seidman annotations to Ulysses. And so before I could say, please, no, help, she had signed me up for this independent study with Bob Seidman. And for about three years, uh, I'd meet Bob about once a month and we'd go over a chapter. And I really just... I don't know if it's nostalgia because I read it almost all during my entire university years in, in New York, or if it was the first time I'd really engaged with a book this deeply and sort of over deeply, or it was the first time I'd been around an adult who took books seriously because they were his life, but not over seriously. I mean, this was a job to him, right? Writing these annotations. It just really made this huge impact on me. And reading Ulysses is like getting hit in the side of the head with Ulysses. It leaves a mark. One of the weird things, and I didn't even realize I was doing this until someone pointed it out to me, is that I have this horrible um, tick or habit, or some people call it their style, where 
I love for things to get very sort of hallucinatory, like very much like plain old scenes or, or actions or, or moments or set pieces that get sort of this feverish haze to them so that everything feels a little, you know, drugged out or um, just sort of uh, feverish and really um, intense. And that's probably something I know I stole that a bit from Ramsey Campbell and I know I stole that a bit from Ulysses. And then the other thing I do, which is a terrible habit, is lists. I love lists. Oh, my God. God. Like a paragraph that's list. I will just write those till the cows come home. And it actually wasn't until I knew I was doing this podcast and pulled down Ulysses and I was flipping through it because I wanted to sound smart. I was like, oh my God, I stole doing lists from, from Ulysses, which makes me sound smart, but also makes me sound really, really like I don't have any good ideas of my own. I kind of feel like Ulysses is one of those books that everyone should read once. I love the easy stuff. Trust me. I mean, I'll read a Jack Reacher novel at the drop of a hat and, and, and go to the mat defending it. I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote a book about 70s and 80s horror paperbacks. I read that stuff all the time. But I also feel like, dude, do a little exercise from time to time. If you love reading, you kind of owe it to yourself to try Ulysses. You know, do Dubliners and then do Ulysses. It's, it's one of those books that's not like any other book because it's so punches you out of your comfort zone. It's kind of like reaching for something on the high shelf or doing that extra set of reps if you're a gym person, which I'm not, but I've heard they do that. Like like the one that sort of makes your arms shake and your legs shake. It's like it, it pushes you and strains your brain in a way nothing else will. And I have to say, it's really, really funny. Ulysses is a comedy from start to finish. Joyce wanted to write a comedy. He's very upfront about it. And you won't find a book with more fart jokes than Ulysses, I don't think. He wanted to take this Greek world of heroes and quests and cyclops and sailing ships and adventures and say, well, yes, and also you can use that same epic heroic language to talk about pooping and masturbating and getting drunk and making an ass out of yourself in public making banal chit chat at a funeral. Everyone's been there. I've over the years come up with my advice to people who want to read Ulysses because it's, it's like a six point plan. The first thing I say to people who want to read Ulysses is like, just relax. You're going to miss stuff. It's okay to miss things. You're going to miss a lot of things. Um, like there's references in here that are really obscure and it's okay. There's a whole lot more. Keep the big picture in mind. Don't get hung up on the little stuff. And then the second thing I would say to people is like, you're a shark. Reading Ulysses, you're a shark. You just keep moving forward. This is like drinking a waterfall. It's way too much. And what you want to get is the overall impression, not the individual details. Just keep going. And then the third thing I would say to people is there's no such things as spoilers with Ulysses. Go out and, and not to, to pimp for Bob Seidman, but buy a copy of the Gifford and Seidman annotations. They break the book down chapter by chapter, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, word by word. So when you hit stuff you don't understand, you can just look it up real quick and move on. It's kind of like, like if you're driving in mud, the annotations, the board you put beneath the wheel of your Jeep to like get unstuck and keep moving forward because always keep moving forward. And then the other thing is it's totally okay to skip. There are some chapters in Ulysses that are impenetrable. Skim it or skip it or just do it real fast because there's another chapter after it that will be more to your liking. Just, it's okay. You're not, you, you, there's not a test later. And then you have to remember the final two things about this book is one is that Joyce wasn't living in Dublin when he wrote it. He hadn't lived in Dublin in years. And all Ulysses is is his attempt to take one day in Dublin in 1904 and remember it 
perfectly. All the streets, all the feelings, all the people, all the shops, all the foods, all the advertising jingles, the world can burn down. And someone a million years from now will pick up Ulysses and they could reconstruct that one June day in Dublin in 1904 perfectly. That's what he wants to do. And the last thing is, it's a really funny book. You got to think a little differently and rewire your brain a little differently to get the jokes. But by a chapter or two, you've either like gone on Joyce's wavelength or you've just given up in disgust and you think I'm a jerk. But this is a book about taking like the whole heroic style of the Odyssey and the Iliad and using it to write the whole heroic story of some dudes strolling around Dublin and getting some drinks and skipping out on work and having asinine conversations and going to a funeral and and getting drunk together and and all the things that means because because you don't have to be this great hero to to have an adventure every day is an adventure everyone is a hero and it can be ridiculous to look at yourself in that light but it can also be kind of sublime and kind of beautiful thanks again to grady hendrix for joining us and recommending ulysses by james joyce his novel we sold our souls published by quirk will be available wherever books are sold on September 18th of 2018. You can follow him on Twitter at Grady underscore Hendrix. Next week on Recommended, one writer muses about nonfiction. I was still in the process of discovering and trying to demarcate the edges of what creative nonfiction was. That's such a weird genre name. And I think in a lot of ways it's really unfortunate because fiction has all these really sexy signifiers. You know, it's short shorts or flash fiction and on the other side we're wearing monocles and drinking scotch like it's always literary essay or personal essay or meditation or creative nonfiction, which sounds like we are not having a third as much fun as the people on the other side of the line thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible if you like what you heard please take a moment to review and rate us on apple podcasts we love to hear your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com. 